Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio at the intersection of comics, nerd culture, and social change. This is your host, Ilana Levin. And today we're talking about Thor Love and Thunder because I will jump at any opportunity to talk about a Taika Waititi movie, a comic book movie especially, uh, and anything where there's a Guns N' Roses soundtrack. Isn't that right, Axel? Sorry, Axel's my cat, and he hasn't been actually invited into this conversation because he hasn't seen the movie, uh, which is why I'm really excited to introduce my three amazing human guests who are bringing with them a wealth of expertise to the table. Jean is a media critic, author, and unapologetic fangirl. She's known for sharing her unique perspective on popular media on Twitter, guest appearances on podcasts, and arguing in bars about temporal paradoxes. She can be found on most social media as Fangirl Jean, J-E-A-N-N-E, or on her website, fangirlgene.com. Welcome to the show. Hey, hello. And hi, Axel. I'm a big fan. <laughs> well, you know, I had originally reached out to you to talk about Thor 3 thousands of years ago, and we didn't get our timing right. So when this movie came out, I was so excited that you were available and we could do this. Me too. I was so, like, we got, we got a second chance at this, and I'm even more excited because I enjoyed this movie so much. I listened to you on somebody else's show talking about Thor 3. What was the name of that show? Uh, the You Are Good podcast. Yes. 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 Folks should check it out. That was a great episode. Also joining me is Johnny J. Johnny J is the Oto Mizora and Choctaw founder, journalist, organizer, creator, and futurist who loves empowering others to chase their passions and create for healing and revolutionary change in the world. She's the founder of A Tribe Called Geek, an award-winning media platform for indigenous geek culture and STEM, and hashtag Indigenerds for Hope, the number four, a suicide prevention initiative designed to educate, encourage, and empower Native youth. Jay is co-founder of Not Your Mascots and Live Indigenous OK, as well as a founding member of the Fan Organizer Coalition. Welcome to the show. Yeah, so glad to be here. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. I'm familiar, actually, with some of your fan organizing work, especially with Not Your Mascots. How, how long has A Tribe Called Geek been around? Oh, it's been a while. I started A Tribe Called Geek back in 2014. Mm. So it's been a long time, and I'm still like in shock that it has grown the way it has. Well, it's some really needed voices in the media landscape and if really smart people, so folks should definitely check it out. And also joining me is Jenna English. Jenna is an educator slash filmmaker currently teaching film and media at a girls' school in Los Angeles. She is also a graphic designer and photographer. Her most recent project is Validation, a web series about the life and times of a parking attendant with a heart of gold. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to this conversation. Well, this is sort of a family affair for us because I've had your husband on the show like five million times. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Although I've read the comics, and I I should have put one and one together. I I didn't realize at first that uh, Thor Love and Thunder had a big storyline around cancer and I assure you, I would have gotten you on the podcast at some point regardless. But when I saw that, (laughs) I immediately was like, I need to talk to Jenna about this. Yeah, yeah. That's what got me because I was like, wait, I'm not the expert on on Marvel. Um, Why am I being asked? And I was like, oh, yes, there is there is a connection there. And um, and I am also a huge Taika Waititi fan. Mm -hmm. Um, That may be huge. I might be overstating that a bit, but I definitely I will see what he what he comes up with because he's always interesting. Yes. Um, Yeah. Cool. Well, I like to start off our show by giving folks a quick 
five to 10 minute spoiler free conversation around whether folks should see the movie or not. And then we're going to jump into full on in depth, hardcore spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, we got a few minutes for you to listen to. Uh, we did mention one of the things we felt like folks should know going into the movie, which is that yes, there is a major cancer storyline. Um, I, I feel like, you know, people have been divided on whether or not that's something that they have wanted going into it. So I feel like it's, you know, people should know that this is a thing that's happening. Uh, but for folks who haven't seen the movie yet, do you feel like folks who enjoyed Thor Ragnarok are going to enjoy Thor Love and Thunder? I would say yes. Um, I would put a caveat on it that um, I think it depends on what they liked about Thor Ragnarok, because I feel like uh, it a lot. It was very much like a bridge between what is expected of Marvel, you know, spectacle films, um, and then um, uh, the colorful wackiness of comic books themselves. And with you know Taika Waititi sprinkled throughout, and this film feels much more about this is the wackiness that can come out of comic books. Mm. And then there's a whole heavy helping of Taika Waititi in there. And for <laughs> me, like the best way uh, I can explain it is when I saw Thor Ragnarok, I immediately knew that Taika Waititi and everybody involved in that were fans of the uh, Flash Gordon movie, you know, the one mm. with the soundtrack by Queen. <laughs> yeah. Even though there was nothing in that that necessarily quickly, uh, you know, cited to that but then i saw this movie i was like oh yeah no they really like this is his flash gordon <laughs> this Got is it. his version of that funny campy rainbow painted with all still all the you know space adventure stuff but um and with a heavy dosing of i would say uh spy kids and that's my big <laughs> thing of like if you uh, if you were somebody who grew up loving spy kids you take go to this movie, take your kids to this movie, take your family, because this definitely feels like one of the more family-friendly films of the MCU. I would put it right up there with like the Ant-Man films of mm. take your kids, they're going to have fun. Yeah, they might see a naked butt cheek, but the, it, for the most part, it's <laughs> going to be really fun for them. And there'll be, you know, hard stuff to talk about, but it's balanced really well to be able to have the kids have fun and then maybe later they can reflect on some of the, you know, sad stuff in there as well. That's some good guidance. Thank you. Johnny, yeah, what, what I, do you think about that? I'm so, I was, okay, I didn't really know what to expect. I was kind of thinking Ragnarok and I kind of went in expecting that. But there's a lot of criticism. Uh, people have said that it feels more like a parody of an MCU movie. Mm. And, but watching it, you know, I just, I was kind of confused a little bit. You know, it seemed more cartoony. It seemed very disjointed in a lot of ways. And I was just kind of like, huh, this is interesting. But it was super fun and I really enjoyed it. But once I finished the movie and I left and I had a little time to reflect on it, I realized like it is kind of a parody in a way, but not exactly of MCU. It's of Disney because the whole movie is told oh. like a story. You know, you open with a core, kind of like, gather around, listen to the adventures of Thor. So we're not watching a Thor movie. We're watching somebody telling a story about a Thor adventure. So everything yes. seemed over the top, like theatrical. You know, a lot of people were complaining that the, like, the costumes and things seemed very, um, I don't know, kind of like, kind of like the Walmart version of, Whoa. Transformers or something, you know? 
<laughs> like the GoBots, you know, the, yeah. I mean, that's the only comparison I could have right now. But, and I was like, hey, you know, there, it didn't feel like there was a, a level of quality I thought was missing, but then I realized it wasn't missing. It was just presented in a different way because, you know, with Disney acquiring Marvel, it changes things. You know, they can't go as dark as they want to in these stories because it has to be kid-friendly. So you're literally watching Taika Waititi telling a Disney story. And right. it's, it's, it's very Absolutely. interesting to me. So, cause after the movie, I'm just like, wow, like that's an actually genius way for a filmmaker to be like, look, I understand I have to make a Disney movie. It has to be kid friendly. I can't go as dark as I want. So, you know, what I'm going to give you is literally a kid's story, which is why it opens with Cord telling kids a story about Thor. And it kind of made the rest of the story make sense. You know, like we see. Um, a couple of gods that were really silly and kind of didn't really make sense in this larger Marvel universe. But then you realize like, oh, that's there as part of the story. Like he's entertaining kids. So mm. he has to add these characters that, you know, are fun for kids. And then, of course, you know, with the butt cheek mention, what's funnier than butts to kids? Because if you've seen the yeah. Minions movie. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I, Johnny, that was like genius. And I, I don't think I came to this conversation with that in mind. And now I, I, I would like to subscribe to your newsletter. That is, I, I believe you are correct. So yeah, Jenna, what are your big picture thoughts about who should see the movie and all that? Yeah. So I, as a um, fan of Thor Ragnarok, I came in, I think, expecting something a little bit different. Um, I, I expected a little bit more edginess, uh, from this, um, and so I think for those, for those of us, I think many of us probably came into it feeling like, okay, well, this isn't exactly what I expected. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you, I think it's like either you kind of go with that and you get into this, this tone or you feel disappointed. Um, and that it's, it's hard to say, but I, for me, it's, it's easy for me to, to kind of switch gears and go, okay, well, this is what we're doing. It is silly. Um, I think there's there's a wide variety of jokes that would make it family friendly because from the very silly to um, to the but then to very dark places as well. And so the cancer, as well as some other stuff with kids was also a little dark. So I would say for older kids, if you mm -hmm. if you were like thinking this is family stuff, maybe a little tough for the little little ones, whereas minions might be right there <laughs> with them. So uh, that's something to think about. Overall, not a disappointment. Overall, enjoyable. Um, mm -hmm. And I appreciated the cancer storyline and the way that they dealt with it. And I know that that's, uh, you know, from the comic book, the way they dealt with it felt true, even though the logistics, obviously, it's a comic book story. So you're like, well, that doesn't really make sense from a kind of like science point of view, but who, who cares, right? It's mm -hmm. still, it, it kind of captured, I think, the, um, what it feels like to be dealing with, you know, your mortality and trying to be a hero at the same time, right? Which is what moms with cancer are doing. So um, I, I appreciated that about it. Well, my, my quick spoiler-free take is um, Thor Ragnarok is like the MCU movie that is probably my favorite and like spoke deeply to my soul. And, you know, I was hoping that this movie could match that and I enjoyed it, but it didn't do that. But that's okay because I strongly suspect that 
it will it will and has done that for some other people based on other positionality that they may hold like not every movie is going to have a line that deeply resonates with the perspective of like an anti-zionist jewish person whose family are holocaust survivors although this movie does indeed reference that exchange in it but um you know, I, I did enjoy the movie, and I, I think that everyone who just spoke brought some really great analysis to its sort of position um, as well. And now we go full, full, full spoilers, at which point I ask Jenna, so, and like, seriously, guys, watch the movie and come back uh, <laughs> here on out, um, which is when I'm going to ask Jenna, like, so did you feel like as a cancer survivor, do you think it was okay how they handled Jane's death? I think... The idea, right, that something that is making you strong is killing your chemotherapy is interesting. Like, I actually, I find that to be a, a really interesting way to deal with, um, with cancer. Um, I think that the main thing that I was thinking about with, with the end and with her death is the sacrifice, which is triggered by that, but you know, wanting to save Thor. And of course she wants to save the whole world, but mm. that I could see being also, it's like, she's, she's going, oh, I have to save him uh, from being killed. And so let me pick up this hammer that I know is going to kill me. Um, mm. And it's complex, right. To have, to make that choice. And that makes it interesting. Um, and I, I also think that there's something really moving about a valiant death in that way. Um, yeah. because you know, like, you know, that she knows that that's that, you know, that's what's happening to her. And there are times where your diagnosis, it does mean that. And it's all about what you do with the time that you have left. And I, and I think this, it, it really captures that, right. Thinking about what, what do I do with this time I have left? And you know what, if this is it for me, I might as well just go all, just go all out, go hog save the world, save the universe for that matter. Yeah. It feels like that's a pretty, I think like a question a lot of people are wrestling with right now from a range of lifestyle and health challenges and issues, you know? Could I pop in just quickly? Please. Cause I wanted to add, obviously I'm not a cancer survivor, but I have a sibling who is, and we had, who has still had young children at the time. And um, so we've had to have those like scary, um, intense conversations. And there was a tweet that someone, uh, the Twitter user's name is Dragon Even Star, all one. And they pointed out that um, the reason that Jane entered Valhalla, and it's actually very specifically stated in a conversation between Sith and Thor about having to die in battle, is that she died battling cancer. And therefore, she died a warrior's death. Oh, and I didn't even think about that. I thought it was because yeah. she was in the fight. Because she was in the fight, but it was no, also the No, but she yeah. comes out of the Mighty Thor uniform before she dies. And so she dies battling cancer. And I remember, like, that was one of the, a couple of times that I cried in the movie that I, like, I'm like, I wish I'd had this movie to explain to, you know, these young girls who were, you know, watching their father go through cancer of like you know i mean he made it out but also like this idea that like validating someone's fight with their their illness whatever it may be that it is just as valid as you know fighting on a battlefield and that you know i think that might resonate with a lot of people with chronic illnesses too and disabilities yeah. of being able to like 
and give an example to have those conversations, especially with kids. And that's part of why I'm like, I think this is a great movie for kids of because there's so much flash, so many like primary color type of things happening. But underneath that, there's some really heavy things happening that once you get home and everybody's gotten through having their talks about the screaming goats and stuff, you could have those conversations about what that means that Jane got into Valhalla. What is that, you know? What what was wrong with the, the choices that Gore made, and how you know what where was what was the choice? You know what's the difference? Like for me, Gore and there it was a very purposeful thing I think to introduce us to Gore and then Jane's cancer storyline before we even get into Thor's stuff because mm-hmm. there's a parallel between the two of them that they both have reasons to hate God, to hate the things that you know to be angry and upset about the unfair treatment that they've received and they both react completely differently where she chooses to save people and try to help and he chooses to hurt and yeah again like primary color you know rainbows against black and white it's such a wonderful way to kind of like take all of these big marvel themes and make them very straightforward but like hide them enough that you know you can introduce it to someone who hasn't really thought about that stuff um, in a way that's really easy to go. Yeah, no, wow, that's a that might not be a helpful way to respond to trauma. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, well, I um, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say it's one hundred percent because I have lupus and my health has been so horrible lately. Mm. So watching this movie, the feelings that come with having like a chronic illness or you know having cancer. You know, like you fight back and forth, like it's always a struggle because you're angry, but, you know, you still want to do something worthwhile with your time. And, you know, it's it's a mess of emotions just coming out of this pandemic. You know, we have a lot of kids who have lost their parents and, you know, are grappling with like survivor's guilt and trying to figure out like, okay, why did my why are my parents not here now? And dealing with the sickness that's still around us, you know, people are still getting sick. People are still dying. And I think coming out of such this, such a dark period with this movie and because of the way that I see it as being kind of like a kid story being told, you know, it's, it's a great way for, it's, it's like how an adult would try and tell a story to get their kids to understand some of these themes. You know, it's lighthearted, but there's still this heaviness and darkness to it. But they try to break it down into these pieces that kids can easily understand and have like a reference for. So, I I mean, I thought that was one of the most genius things about this movie. Because it just like it hit. Do you just roll with the anger or do you roll with hope and do you roll with you know, wanting to just be productive and do something good with your time or, I mean, it was just a whole mix of emotions. And, you know, I thought it was so brilliantly done with that storyline. You know, I, one of the things that I thought was also really important is like in this climax of the movie where Thor realizes that he's going to have to like turn to the children to help join the fight as well. And, um, you know, he, he uses his power to empower the kids. I I love the choice. You know, huge Guns N' Roses fan, obviously, was not surprised to see November Rain show up in this movie. But uh, 
I would have guessed that November Rain would have shown up having to do with Jane's death because you think about the whole Stephanie Seymour death and the classic music video, which is like, like not, not surprisingly, not situated in a feminist way in particular at all. But then in this movie, it has nothing to do with that at all. It starts rather than with the beginning of the song. It starts with that crescendo of November Rain with the lyrics, don't you know that you need someone? Everyone needs someone. You're not the only one. So like it takes you right into the middle of this song as Thor is supercharging with the, with the thunder, the powers of all these little kids of all different uh, alien species, right? Like it was important. It wasn't just as guardian children, right? Empowering them to also fight back and join in the fight, um, which I thought was like really powerful. And they form a tree of life. Like that upper shot to me, I read that as forming mm. the tree of life with his power. And that, that like, that was reinforcing that theme that was kind of a jokey thing on the posters of like the one and only Thor. But there isn't a one and only Thor because it's not about, the, like, the power isn't about just Thor himself. It's about the ability. And I did see, mm. I wanted to mention this because I did see someone, I think they were really joking, but you know how the internet can take a joke and take situations and like twist around the ideas of like, but anyway, like the, where they were like, <laughs> oh, Thor made them child children, sol you know, child soldiers. And I was like, oh, God. okay, first off, <laughs> there's a difference between indoctrination and empowerment. And that scene to me was about taking children who had literally no power, who had been kidnapped and terrified by the stranger um, and threatened, and then Thor gave them the power to defend themselves. It was not, I am making them in an army to fight for me. And that that, like, and for me, I was transported to what it would have been like to watch that as a child and mm -hmm. seeing some, you know, seeing a little girl use a bunny to blast monsters. I'm like, this man is genius yeah. <laughs> of like, that anything can be a thing to help protect you and to save you. And that that is a very literal meta metaphor that he created in that scene. And oh, and the use of November rain, like, oof, yeah. Um, but yeah, like that, that there's so many situations in this film that are like that, that like it seems kind of silly unless you stop and think about like that it's a literal embodiment of a metaphor that's happening. And that that and I love the idea of like the, this is a, a children's story being told you know, or a, a bigger story being told in a children's pr story perspective. So it's not condescending at all, but mm -hmm. it is like bright and shiny and it's focusing on very, you know, it's very quick. It's giving you information, but it's also, um, you know, seeding things that might hit you later. As far as the storytelling aspect of it about, you know, the whole, the whole film is bookended. And I think it's also mentioned in the middle, like, that this is um, a story being told to children about their history mm -hmm. um, as they've been disconnected from, you know, their, uh, you know, homeland, if you will, where, <laughs> you know, they're ancestral, they're their ancestral, their ancestral yeah. home, right? Yeah. And they, they're being told this, Korg, who is being, you know, kind of speaking as a griot of, of sorts or telling the story of Thor and telling the story of their people. And that's at the beginning and they come back to it you know, at the end, at the very end, um, that almost to say that this story continues, you know, I felt like that the story's not over, but it is a story that is like, that is being told to children to teach them. Um, and so it's, it's almost 
so that's sort of like built into to the the narrative in a, a somewhat reflexive way or um you know a book it's a story within a story um it gets it's a little clumsy at times but i think that if you are looking for you know if you're looking at at for a metaphor or for it's for some meaning that's really there and there's a reason why he wanted to include you know this this story being told to the children of asgard it also yeah. was a brilliant way to have to be able to avoid an exposition dump that was like not right. going to be fun and engaging and because it like gave us you know hit, hit the wonderful voice acting work from taika that like keeps it's fun and it has a lightness and it keeps people engaged and so you just don't have this info dump and then you know they also use the tool of the play within the play they bring that back which is another way to make sure yeah. people understand the context of what's happening maybe they have forgotten the stuff from the other thor movies like i thought that was pretty genius Okay, I wanted to talk, especially with Johnny, about the experience, about the presentation of of New Asgard, and especially how it relates to the fact that this is a story that seems to actually be told to um, Asgardian children, and that in the end of the film, we're seeing them being empowered also by being trained as warriors, and seeing that new generation being, you know, handed the the tools by like Valkyrie and Sif and being trained as warriors, but also the, uh, you know, the commercialization, the tourism of New Asgard and uh, from like an indigenous perspective, I, um, I'm Pacifica, I'm Tongan, but I grew up in Hawaii and I grew up around this type of like um, where you're basically having to like monetize your trauma to survive because your oppressor is still like has their boot on your throat and i saw uh, specifically some criticism about the, the ice cream shop opening that has thanos's glove and someone said i'm paraphrasing that you know what oppressed people would like open a, a, a shop capitalizing on the genocidal maniac that wiped out half of their um people and i'm like have you been to hawaii have you have you been to a luau in hawaii like you're literally like that is participating in the you know cultural genocide because it's a repackaging of a cultural you know oppressed people so you can consume it and then like leave and go home to your life but they have to live with that every day so it's actually not unusual, but I especially wanted to see about like the talk to Johnny about their uh, uh, perspective, uh, you know, the indigenous perspective from a Native American point of view, since I'm Pacifica. Yeah, it was I thought it was hilarious to see New Asgard so commercialized and kind of like it's treated as a tourist destination. Because that's that's the reality that we live with as Native people here in the U.S. People treat our homelands like tourist destinations you know and and not just you know like for vacations but we see this in a lot of missionary work and volunteer work like they come to the reservation and you know they treat it like this oh look at look what these poor people are going through and look what they're dealing with and you know like and you have to play up with it like let me just tell you a funny story so we moved to Taos, new mexico in 1999 and my brothers and sisters um, went to the Taos Pueblo Day School. And so they were out on Taos Pueblo every day for school. And, you know, they took the bus home. And there was a good maybe like 30 minutes to an hour that they had to wait for the bus. And we noticed that my brother and sister were coming home with money. 
And I'm not talking like a dollar or five dollars. I'm talking like up to a hundred dollars. And my mom is sitting there like, where's this money come from? Are you guys stealing this money? Like what's going on? It turns out that my brother and sister and a bunch of other kids from the Taos Pueblo were literally selling rocks to tourists and telling them that it came from Blue Lake, which is a sacred lake that nobody is allowed around <laughs> except for the Taos Pueblo people. But oh, they were God. selling them rocks. Like they, after school, they would go and gather rocks and they would stand out there by the Taos Pueblo and sell them to tourists. And depending on the size of the rock, you know, the price went up. And, you know, so when I saw this new Asgard, you know, that's what it brought me back to. And I, I thought it was so funny. Oh, that's and awesome. See, and especially seeing like, the infinity cone, right? Like, mm. I know a lot of people are like, what the heck? But I was cracking up because I was like, come on, guys. Every Halloween, Native people have to address like a lot of these Halloween special hot, you know, features that people do in mazes being called trail of fears you know all these little mm-hmm. plays things that are connected to native history in terms of genocide and they're always like but it's just it's funny it's a play on words and it's like okay so it doesn't make it right but you know come on guys <laughs> right like this is the reality that we're seeing everywhere you go like there is a commercialization of you know the trauma that native people go through and people consume it. And we have these conversations all the time that, you know, when it comes to Native people trying to tell our history, to tell our narratives, the one thing that gets more intention than anything else is when it's dealing with the trauma. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. the murdered and missing Indigenous women has become commercialized outside of Indian country. You know, we see a lot of non-Native people selling murder missing and murdered indigenous women like t-shirts you know they're even stealing art from native people to sell these t-shirts you know the residential boarding schools are being talked about now and you know and it's got people interested and you know it's one of those things where if you've ever worked in journalism you know the things that sell the most are sex and death and so when i saw all this with new asgard like i i thought it was such a brilliant way to kind of bring that into conversation and make people start thinking about it without having to be preachy about it. I mean, I saw the Twitter thread, like they were implying like Taika Waititi hadn't thought about how having that ice cream cone place was like having a genocide themed ice cream parlor. And I'm like, actually, it's probably the opposite. He's probably exactly thinking about it in, in what you said too. Which also, is. you know, let's shout out to the wonderful show Reservation Dogs as being, yes, you know. Yes. Well, that, that's why I'm like, how do you think that a, a indigenous Jewish man who played a, 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 a satirical version of Hitler didn't think about the implications of the Infinity Cone? Like, yeah. come on, guys. <laughs> Everything was so intentional with that scene because, you know, from a Native perspective, like when I saw it, I was just like, I was getting all these little references of things that we deal with every single day. And even the the whole theme outside of the story of, you know, telling these kids, you know, like you have power, like you can use it and how they were training the kids at the end. Because when you see the kids at the beginning, you know, they're playing video games. They're just in their homes. They're not outside playing or anything like that. All these kids mm-hmm. are stolen from inside their homes, like a very sheltered existence. 
you know, like where they've kind of assimilated to, you know, that this whole modern world that they're forced into, like got their cell phones, they got their TVs, video games, and, you know, they kind of forget that, you know, there's a history that there's, um, like there's, there's something more that, that they're connected to. Like it's been kind of severed since they're no longer in Asgard. And, you know, they're having to rebuild all that. And the kids, you know, they don't really think about that. And that's something that we're dealing with as Native people, you know, it's, and there's kind of like a resurgence now where it's our youth that are starting to lead these movements of like language reclamation, of learning ways to preserve our culture in ways that are relevant to them through technology. And it's such an amazing thing to see and to see that being put into this movie. And it was, and it was very subtle which is what what I loved about it because it seemed very natural. It wasn't a forced narrative. It just seemed very natural, but it was very intentional. And I mean, I, I mean, I walked away from this movie with some of these themes that I was catching and I was just like, how did he fit so many relevant things in such an impactful and meaningful way in a Marvel movie? Yeah, I, like I, I think it's a really good testament to hiring diverse filmmakers Mm -hmm. um i think that that this is a perfect example of why we do it right and it's for one thing of course right as people of color we're making just as interesting or maybe more interesting work than our um you know our more privileged counterparts but the layers that are possible and the way it can speak to a larger group of people right so taking this uber Northern European, you know, uh, folklore and being able to weave, you know, different people's experiences within that, uh, with those characters and within those storylines is something that is possible because of his experience as a person of color, as an indigenous person, Mm -hmm. um, and as a mixed person, right? With two, two kind of heritages, um, of, with histories of oppression and genocide. Um, so, it, it it's it's just really beautiful and also sort of disappointing when people criticize him so heavily because it does feel like there's this part of the population that don't they don't get it right like we get this stuff we see these things and some and there are people that are not getting it and they're yeah. the silliness yeah, yeah like I feel like Axel <laughs> who um Ahemdal's son is like such a great example and. and as somebody who's diaspora of like that experience of, you know, having your culture, but also growing up away from it in a sense, and then being kind of enamored of, you know, this other culture a lot. And, but still like finding him being able to find balance in both pride in his heritage and his ability, but also uh, getting to kind of claim, you know, space for himself and his name, Axel, and for Thor to like, accept that that is his name and then yeah we're yes. cool and um I, th- I like that's relatable to me as you know a diasporous indigenous person i think it could be relatable to somebody who a, a, a child who's a refugee like there's so many layers there and and the fact that he's a black boy who gets to wield this power like yeah. just genius layers and it is a bit. I what I did want to mention that I was just reading today that the studio mandated that the runtime of this film be under two hours, which I understand. I think you know, uh, from a perspective of like this being family friendly marketing, I say that with air quotes. Um, mm-hmm. mar- it makes sense since kids' movies are you know 
usually around 90 minutes or so. So they wanted to keep it tight. But the amount of stuff that was still able to be fit into that runtime is amazing. It is. And, And, you know, just talking about what you just mentioned, you know, about Axel and being able to, you know, make that space for himself and take pride in his culture and his power. You know, that's something that Indigenous people really deal with and grapple with because it, you know, there's this saying that we have that we live in two worlds. You know, we have a shoe in one and moccasin in the other. Mm-hmm. And there's this battle that we face, whether, you know, are we contemporary? Are we going to be traditional? And there's a battle that you have to, like, it makes it feel like you have to choose one or the other. And the thing that I loved about this movie was that it showed that you don't have to choose. You could be contemporary. You could be traditional. You know, you can change your name to Axel, but it doesn't change who you are. Like, you know, he's still Asgardian. He's still got this power. And it doesn't, like, his name doesn't lessen any part of that. And I think that was such an important message for, like, for them to show, you know, for them to to give to kids because, you know, we're growing up in a world where we have a more global connection. So, you know, what does being an Oto woman mean? What does being a Choctaw woman mean? And, you know, and it's funny because, you know, I'm Oto, Missouri and Choctaw, but the way that our enrollment system works, you do have to choose. Like you could be, you know, several tribes, but you have to choose one or the other to enroll mm. with. You can't be like dually enrolled. So I really love that they were showing that because, you know, yes, I'm enrolled Choctaw, but it doesn't mean that I'm any less Oto. You know, like I, you know, I am fully an Oto, Missouri, a Choctaw woman. I'm also a geek. You know, I could be all these things and it doesn't lessen who I am as an Oto, Missouri, and Choctaw woman. Yeah. 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 And I liked how that in its way is also reflecting the overarching um, character arc that Thor is going through, which I know there's been a lot of criticism about like he doesn't go through character growth. I think that is. Uh, a product of mishandling by other creators and also the choppiness mm-hmm. of how his storyline has rolled out through the various movies. But I think in this one, it really took that idea, applied it to Thor of like, he literally on, you know, is saying like, he doesn't necessarily know who he is and that battle is the only thing he's good for, which is super relatable to how a lot of indigenous and people of color are, you know, only allowed to be violent, only allowed to be one thing and are often weaponized in that way of like, that's, mm-hmm. you know, a, and I feel that with him. I felt that with that struggle with him in Ragnarok too, of that he was being um, used to create a metaphor of like, of, of that, um, how white supremacy affects white people in the same in in a different way but like with the similar outcomes to the rest of us of that you only get to be one thing and it has to look like this and the the pains and struggles that thor goes through is a product of only being seen as the god of thunder and not allowing to be able to you know deal with his trauma and his grief and to uh like and to grapple with the mistakes of his father and Mm. of his people and trying to like the fact that he has to go away from his people to try to figure out who he is and then it still doesn't really help him to figure out what he is and that that like i liked that the story reinforced that for him 
discovering who he was and becoming a hero was after what happened when he met Jane, who had no power had in was just doing what she does really well with dedication and was helping people. And that that by that example, this incredibly powerful quote unquote God alien guy was able to like understand the things that he could do and who he and who he could become. And then he didn't have to be just one thing. And um, I think that the, it does. You know, like the narrative, there's a lot to fit in. It's not necessarily as, uh, you know, as poetic, you know, as well executed and smooth in it. But I think it still tries to nail it home at the end of like that, that the idea there is that it's not his powers that define him again, that the, that um, he's f- more than the Thor mantle. He is a person and he has things to offer and that he doesn't have to be um, just a weapon, that he could also be a guiding light for somebody. And um, for me, I liked the idea of like that transformation that Jane herself functioned as a transformation of teaching him um, that fatherhood isn't about personal legacy, which is absolutely what what Odin was in mm. this franchise, and that its fatherhood is about um, about uh, being a, a a mentor and a a, a guide, a supporter, and that and that the, yeah. is what he ends up becoming as the movie goes on. Of like less of like I got to do this thing, and more of like. I'm going to help. I'm going to be here for you, even though you made a choice that I didn't agree with and it's hurting me. I'm still going to support you in that choice that you made. I mean, his reaction to Jane, I loved how it was both no, but also, okay, he accepted that she made this choice and it means her death and she, and he's going to fight next to her. And I'm like, that, like, feminist boyfriend Thor. <laughs> no, it really seriously because it killed me when they were talking and he told her you made me worthy and like because yeah. he was grappling yeah. and pe- you know like you could kind of easily take that as he's just you know trying to rekindle this romantic idea that he had about their relationship but when you look at the his whole storyline and you know the struggle that he had in finding himself and learning to wield his power responsibly. Because when we first meet Thor in these movies, he's like the party guy. You know, he's just kind of like a frat boy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, and he she taught him to be responsible, that his power could do so much more good in the world. And, you know, so when he finally saw her again and, you know, he told her, you made me worthy. Like my little heart just like, no, don't my tears started kind of springing forward and I was like, don't let me get emotional over this. This is not sad. This is not anything but like huge, but it was such a turning point when he said, you made me worthy because he understood that, you know, his power had like, he wasn't using it to the best of his ability. And because he was grappling with his identity issues and, you know, he was making mistakes that he still understood that he was worthy enough to yield that power. And, you know, seeing her pick up, you know, the hammer and, you know, do all the things that she was doing, you know, it just kind of, I think it's further solidified that in himself that, okay, you know, like you can be a mess 
you know, you can have all these different struggles going on and you could still choose to do good in the world. Like you can still make these choices and he's, and you still have the ability to make those choices. Cause I think with Thor, I think most of the time in all of his, all of the movies, it seemed like he was forced into action. He was forced to take on these roles that he didn't really necessarily know how to handle. So he was just doing the best that he could. And I really love that in this movie, he was kind of figuring it out. Like he was like, okay, you know, I made these mistakes, but this is where I want to go from here. Like this is who I want to be. And so this is what I'm going to try to be. And so, you know, that just that one line in this movie, you made me worthy, just hit so hard for me <laughs> because I was like, yes. Can I piggyback on on that read re, mm-hmm. or the feminist or the, the film being feminist? What I really loved is that the scene and even sort of the whole part where they're reconnecting, she literally is like who she's she's not intentionally ignoring him. She's just so focused on what she's doing and getting better and saving these people that she's like, doesn't even know he's there, you know? And I, I was like, wow, this is just, we don't see that very much, right? We expect there them to have this, you know, be reunited and she comes running into his arms and they, you know, she's missed him as much as he's missed her. And that is not at all what happens. I mean, she's like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, there's, there you are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, it takes a while for him to even become worthy of her love again in the film, right? To sort of win her back because at first she's just like, you know, you know, you, you kind of jetted on me. I've been taking care of myself and she's just, you know, like she's, she's not thinking about him. And I love that we got to see him go through that. Right. Being like, oh, my God, I love this woman so much. And she just doesn't even seem to like see me. Right. I got to like be there for her. Yeah. I actually thought that the use of Stormbreaker, the axe, um, was because, okay, so my reading of Stormbreaker's behavior with him of being jealous (laughs) of Mjolnir is quite literally a manifestation of his own insecurity that resulted in the destruction of their relationship. Was, you know, he believes she dumped him, but he was pulling back the whole time because he was really insecure about his ability, quote unquote, to like protect her, that he could lose her. And that made him insecure. I like they're like, I'm like, I read this whole thing. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. But that was my reading of how because she mm-hmm. was like, you know, uh, you know, no, you left first and she didn't seem heartbroken. And she understood what was happening and he had to come to terms with what actually broke apart the relationship, which is manifested in Starbreaker of his insecurity, despite all the things he kept trying to do to reassure himself that he's still Thor. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't make a difference. He's still worthy of the hammer, but he's still got a problem he needs to resolve. And I'm like, you could go into like the canon of the fact that when he, you know, where he was at mentally and emotionally when he forged Stormbreaker might be why it reacts that way. But I like to think of like, no, that's really Thor embodied in the fact that he like he he totally supports Jane having power, having his power, quote unquote. Um, but all at the same time, he's really insecure about the fact that his power would rather be with Ooh. her and that that's a struggle that men can go through and 
still think that they're like, I'm supportive and I'm a feminist ally, but also be still like really uncomfortable and insecure about what what makes them who they are if they don't have that masculine quote of power. And I think that 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 is the arc that's happening that I think a lot of people don't under like they they don't like Thor occupying that kind of space because he for them embodies like the the jock physical masculinity blonde hair like you said like the 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 frat boy and that the Mm -hmm. idea that the frat boy could actually go through that kind of transformation to uh share his power and not only share his power but be okay with someone else like a woman taking his power and a woman in uh, who he's in love with being his equal which is absolutely what's happening there and maybe even actually better at the job than he is oh yeah and him learning to be comfortable with that him accepting her autonomy to make choices about her body like all of those levels are in that presentation of their relationship but also his character arc in the story and i'm like this might be why there's people who don't know how to like interact with this thor because this thor is completely subverting all the the expectations you would have on what he looks like on the outside of the hard rock and blonde sex god you know warrior and yet he's you know doing all these things i mean he is in a, in a wonderful ally who, who you know who has a lesbian best friend and yeah a gr- let's talk about tessa thompson and yeah. also her amazing her amazing chemistry with jane foster which i knew they wouldn't do anything with but was very very palpable to me um i mean honestly like one of my main critiques of the movie is the lack of tessa thompson as king valkyrie but she definitely like nails every moment she's in um what what, what were folks thoughts about about her in this movie J- jenna do you, do you have do you have feelings about it um well i i'm a huge fan of her and the character um valkyrie and and i i liked that they there was this little subtle subtle um things about her uh you know her sexuality and I actually, what I appreciated was that the relationship she has with Jane is independent of Thor. And I didn't, yes. I didn't mm. need them to be romantically interested in each other. I loved that they had a friendship based on just them kind of having the same goals, understanding. They've built this relationship outside of him. And I thought it was really well handled. When you realize like, oh, they're totally buddies, right? Like they got each other's backs. They, they, you know, they have forged this relationship. And I, I actually, uh, joke to, uh, to my husband about how, well, he was very, it felt very much like he was like Bechtel test check, you know, and, but in a way that made sense for the story. So I, I appreciated mm-hmm. that. And, and I, I think that the little, the, the little nuances of her being queer is is actually nice it's nice that you don't that it's not overly done right but it's almost like these wink wink nod nod moments so um so i really appreciate the handling of of her character but you can always have more tessa thompson yes absolutely and i you know one of the things i loved about their friendship was when you're when they kind of show valkyrie they're doing these flashes of her kind of acclimating to her role as, you know, the leader of new Asgard. And she looks absolutely bored. 
in every scene and kind of annoyed that, you know, this is her reality now Mm -hmm. when she's used to being in battle. And I think when Jane came along, I think, you know, it was somebody that she could relate to, you know, that was battling this grappling, you know, with cancer, whereas she was grappling with trying to be a leader and trying to figure out like, okay, who am I if I'm not, you know, like a fighter? And I think because Jane was battling cancer and because it was such a huge battle and then she got these Thor powers and, you know, she was able to kind of be a protector. I think having someone around who had that same level of power and ferocity that she had, just like that fight, I think it kind of grounded her and made it a little easier for her to take on that role as leader of New Asgard. (laughs) And I loved, Mm -hmm. like, when you see them interacting with each other, it's so natural. It's like they've really formed a sisterhood that they understand each other, that, you know, they have each other's back no matter what. And, you know, when Jane smashes the sink because she's so frustrated that, you know, despite everything she thinks she's doing, you know, she's not getting better. You know, Tessa's like, so are we going to talk about this? You know, <laughs> right. And, and it was such like, like she understood where that came from. And she understood, you know, like not to push Jane. Like she didn't have to go into this, push her or force her into this big conversation about it. You know, they just kind of understood what it was. And she's like, you know, I'll, I'll have that fixed. Like, don't worry about it, you know. I I absolutely love that. And I like that they didn't try to force any kind of like romance between them either, because I think one of the things that that kind of annoys me in a lot of movies where they're trying to show queer representation is that they always try to force a love interest in there some way. Like they never just let that person just be a queer person in a movie. Like there has to be a reason. And it's usually a romantic reason that they're there. So I really love, like, they just let Valkyrie be. And, you know, like, there's a scene where, you know, they're in the form of of gods. And, you know, like, she goes up to grab Thor's thunderbolt. And she takes a moment, you know, to kind of flirt. And (laughs) and I really love that because it's not like she gave up the fight and she didn't lose focus of what their goal was. But, you know, she understood like, oh, here's an opportunity. And, you know, she she did her little thing, but then she went right back to their mission. Like she didn't stop and, you know, like, oh, like this is the girl I'm going to be in love with. And they didn't bring her back to that moment to try and force, you know, be like, oh, well, they made a, a, a connection. And so it has to be romantic. You know, they let it just be a flirty, fleeting moment. And she went on with her business. And I really love that because. And and even with Jane and Thor, you know, I love that they didn't really try to force them back into a romantic relationship. I I like that they just let all these cards just kind of like lie where they were. Like it wasn't a cookie cutter story, like a romance story. And I really love that because, you know, I'm asexual. So one of the things that kind of annoys me a lot is just the fact that in every single movie, there is always like this romantic notion like you never just let people be friends or pal around you know but i get you know but the thing is like it's also because this is a way that they can make this editable to be shown in countries that don't let that don't allow 
the showing exactly. LGBTQ stuff on screen. Like if, if, if this is an indie movie where like, I know all these choices are being made by the director and writer, like I, I feel differently about it than I do with it being a Disney movie where I know that there's these external forces that are making it have to be in a certain way. I mean, what, what, one of the things, I mean, this is sort of jumping a bit. One of the things I was thinking about, you know, I, I really enjoy Korg um, and, you know, him talking about his dads and, uh, you know, in the end of the movie, he finds this Dwayne and they're going to make a kid because this movie is, you know, all about acquiring kids and relations with children and stuff. And they have that scene where you see them shaking hands over the fire pit. And I love that as like an origin story for where, where Crodens come from. I even was wondering if it connected to some other cultural mythology around where life comes from that I might be unfamiliar with. But then after I left, and I was sort of responding to some concerns that other people had voiced around queer presentation in, in the movie, I was like, oh, but you know what? Having babies come from a volcano is, and like handshakes, is a convenient way to take sex out of the question of queerness for, which is not to say you have to have sex to be queer, because asexual people are queer. But um, but that like, you know, this is a homoromantic, you know, male rock dude, and he's not having is, is no there's no sex there's handshaking you know what i mean so i'm like yeah. i love it but then i also have to think about it per, the sort of constraints that hollywood films you know going internationally or even here have it doesn't necessarily affect the storytelling in a negative way like i think back to like the production code and the films mm. of the 30s and how they play they they figured out ways to like you know, metaphorically bring up sex and, um, you know, kind of skirt the censors. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, we are kind of moving into a conservative time like that now where filmmakers are having to be creative. It also creates some really interesting storytelling, though, right? To um, to Johnny's point, like it's it, it makes you, you have to kind of look past, okay, we're just going to have these two people in bed and think about, a little bit more than that. And I think I personally, probably because I'm an educator, I feel that constraints very often lead to very uh, like heightened creativity. Um, so there's that side of, of the, of the coin. Yeah. I, like the, like, I feel like, I feel like the movie wasn't done any favors by, I mean, and God, like I, the, the journalist asking this, like, I don't know what their agenda was, but like, it was like, asked to Natalie Portman, who I don't think identifies as queer, how gay is this movie? And Natalie Portman being like, so gay. I'm like, you are not doing yourself any favors because people are definitely going to be expecting something that you are not going to deliver. Like, you know what I mean? I didn't expect that it would be. And certainly like, I didn't need her to say that it, it was when I don't think you can say that, especially in the context of like all the other queer media that's around. So much of the media circus, though, I, I, I was like, I almost decided to write something about this and then decided not to, um, you know, when Guns N' Roses released their second album, Lies, it was all about like the tabloid media and the pressure of like the second album, you know, they had released this like perfect first album, Appetite for Destruction, and then what's going to happen with the sophomore effort. And then, you know, critics were like, this is not, this is not as good as the other one. This is, this is different. I mean, and I was thinking about how, you know, so much of the response, including my immediate response to the movie, and you guys have brought a lot out to me that I hadn't felt before, but my response to this Thor 4 was, you know, this is good, but it's not as good as the original. I was like, is this, is this, a, is it fair to compare the Guns N' Roses album release, a sophomore release response to this being the, uh, 
second Taika Waititi Thor movie response and like it's the the, the complicated and undervalued second movie. Um, but I feel like the media circus around it, I think people expected that it was going to be doing the movie big favors. And then I think it actually did not do the movie big favors at all in the end. Right. Yeah. Although like, I do think the movie is pretty gay and I was, ha- I was very appreciative about that. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, like, so my perspective, uh, you know, I'm queer. The whole issue that I like, we hit this like as a regular cycle within online queer community discussions about media is like, oh no, this one, you know, this one film, you know, only had, you know, the, these no name two women kissing in the background. That's not representation. And, um, which absolutely is valid. I think all of the criticism is valid. Mm-hmm. I think all of the praise is valid. I think the problem is a much we're trying to make one film shoulder the burden for representation for an entire media landscape. And that that's the problem is that there's so few pieces of representation within a mainstream media context that we always feel that it, you know, that any one mention of it or showing of it is having to be the you know, trademark quotation, the gay representation. And that's, that's unfair. And also mm-hmm. like that, the, the quote that, that is about Lan- Natalie Portman saying it's so gay was actually in like a premiere where it was Taika, Tessa and her, people were asking if it was gay and Taika's signal to her, to Natalie. And she said, it's so gay. And they were kind of having fun with it. And I think, um, you know, this is also one of the things that, you know, the queer community of the LGBTQ community, we have this, this problem where like gay means a lot of different things. Queer means a lot of different things. So, so some of us might think it's very queer. I think the movie is queer up and down, but that's because yeah. I'm looking at how it's queering our ideas of family and it's queering oh. our ideas of love. And that th- this film doesn't show us sex at all. It shows us love in all types of varying versions of that friendship, romantic, um, you know, flirty, um, all uh, family, community. You know, it's showing love in a lot of ways. And I think it's actually more subversive if we're presenting this to children than just showing one couple kissing on screen once versus we see two two mothers concerned about their children that have been kidnapped. We see, uh, we get a a very decided, you know, rock version of the stork story about where babies Mm -hmm. come from. And this, you know, it's that two, two people who love each other, hold their hands over a volcano and a baby comes out. Uh, That's no different to me than all the many very weird stories we tell children about where babies come from. Um, Also, I would like to mention that Cork does find his Dwayne, who is a rock. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> the Pacific, you know, I'm like, oh, I saw that. I saw what you did. If, if any listeners are aware of like a mythology where that's the, because I just feel like that's such an interesting creation of life mythology piece that I'm like, that could be from something and I'm just not aware. Of well, but I mean, there's well. like many different uh, like creation stories of like powerful spirits, gods, you know, whatnot that are born from the love of of their parents. I mean, like, you know, uh, uh, was it Athena bursts out of 
of Zeus's head. head. Yeah. So you have a lot of dope. So I don't think it's necessarily directly attributed to a particular mythology, but I think it's it's hinting to that because we're using a lot of those god metaphors in the movie. I would like also to point out because I haven't seen anybody talk about this, and I keep like in my non-spoilery things like hinting, watch the first movie. These are the same themes. Gods in this universe are parents. And the entire, mm. uh, like, the whole arc of, like, what Gore's going through and of the criticism of the gods is talking about negligent parents. It's talking about people who were put in charge to take care of groups of people, families, who uh, don't do that, either through neg negligence or just badly taken care of, you know. Um, and that criticism that is a big part of Thor Ragnarok of like having to realize that his father wasn't who he thought he was and that a lot of the, the damage that his father did to him, his people and to his culture and to other people and other cultures. And that I feel like this actually thematically is a great sequel to Ragnarok because it's him getting to process that both as like dealing with other people who are his father's contemporaries doing the same irresponsible shit and then him trying to like grappling with what what do I do now now that I've learned that my father my family were a part of essentially galactic colonization um were terrible guardians wreaked a lot of havoc when I was told my whole life that I'm a hero what do I do with that and I think what um, what we're shown with Thor is social responsibility on a large scale mytholo mythological story is I find out that the people who are supposed to take care of everyone don't give a shit that I'm going to take care of it myself because I know I can't not know this, which means I have to be called to action. And the fact that he learns that process from marginalized people is a really important thing too. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think in that thematically, he both, is it, it is a thematic sequel uh, uh, to Ragnarok, but I also think it's repeating or echoing a lot of the themes that are happening in Phase Four MCU, which is talking about uh, reckoning with the fact that you know you're part of something terrible. That's the Eternals. You're reconnecting with your family and your culture. We're seeing that with Miss Marvel. We're also mm -hmm. reckoning with the toxic legacy of the past, which I think is actually what's happening in multiverse of madness what we're seeing with wanda and i think there's a lot of interesting discussion about comparing wanda to gore i think there's it's not a coincidence that they're paralleled their their journeys of feelings that their family is a representation of their personal happiness and then feeling robbed of that they're making other people pay and they're using violence as a form to gain back happiness that and that how if you're using violence to try to gain something that's going to make you feel good, it's going to be poisoned by the actions you took to get it. But in the end, their children end up being taken care of somebody, that they're okay and take them in love, just not by them, and that they don't have the capacity of being that safe place for their children. So I definitely think that there could have been better ways to handle Wanda's arc in uh, Multiverse of Madness, but I definitely think that uh, both her and Gore are actually kind of an interesting indictment of Tony and the other fathers. Uh, actually, I think we need to make some time to talk about Gore um, and what he's what he's trying to. I think one of the significant stories of the movie that 
as people have been quiet about, oddly, is this is the gods aren't coming to save you. Like the whole, like so much of this journey is Thor and Thor and Valkyrie going to try to recruit an army of more powerful people to come and save them who actually are rejecting them. Um, they don't care. The elites, as it were, are just going to party by themselves. And so it's, you know, on us to save ourselves. Um, and sometimes that can include stealing the weapons of the powerful, like stealing the thunderbolt, but no one's going to swoop in and save you. Uh, feels like a pretty timely, uh, thing to be talking about. Um, yeah. I, no, I'd like to I, po quickly point out that that narrative of like the, the gods aren't coming to help you or your parents are coming to help you is a standard trope of young adults and children's stories of that the kids have to go save the thing because the you know like um percy jackson lightning thing the gods aren't coming to help you you've got to become the hero i was really surprised pleasantly surprised but just surprised that in the current climate um that this film is squarely anti-god i mean there's yeah. not we don't have too many examples of Hollywood films, right? Mainstream films that are like, there's no gods either suck or they're not, they don't really exist or they're not what we think they are. And I mean, this, it, it really pounds that idea home. And that was, that was almost, I mean, it's so subversive. It almost feels more subversive than, than, I mean, maybe it's another way that the film is queering things, right? But as Americans, that is such a no no. And I thought, oh, my mm -hmm. God, well, he's just really like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. And I don't hear people talking about it a lot. So it seems like no. it kind of fly, flew under the radar. But it was a bit that to me was a very big deal. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, it's it's kind of funny because um, so not many people know this, but I'm actually Reverend Johnny J. Um, and I like to joke that I'm just too much of a heathen to practice. But um <laughs> I come from a long line of preachers, so I didn't really see the movie as being anti-God, but I did see it as more of a very subtle and I think clever way of illustrating kind of like a belief that I have. Um, and in the way that I grew up in the church is we were always taught that as people, we are the hands and feet of God. You know, God did his thing. He created us. He's watching over us. We're all born with gifts that we're supposed to use in the world. So I didn't really see the movie as being anti-God. I thought it was a kind of like a subtle reminder that, you know, as, as people, it's our responsibility to take care of each other. Like we look out for each other. We care for each other. We raise each other up. We, we support each other. And because so much of that is put on God, people are content. A lot, especially now with the way that the church is, people are content to sit back and be like, okay, what, whatever happens, that's God's will, you know? And we have a lot of people speaking about what is God's will and making a lot of decisions based on their idea of what God's will is. We have to do some of that work ourselves in changing our fate. Like that's still in our power. So I, I, I didn't really see it as being anti-God. I just thought it was more about learning our responsibilities as human and understanding that we do have a responsibility to each other to to help each other and not really just leave it up to you know some god or some other entity or expect them to be always there to save us yeah he helps yeah, those I who mean, help themselves right. i don't know if it's on purpose but we're seeing systems of power being paralleled with you know godly or you know because 
so often we associate the ideas of of systems of power as just being omnipotent and taking care of anything so much so that it acquits we choose to acquit ourselves of of responsibility for change and i think um Mm. you can see that parallel with um the what if series wherein the watcher in many ways is supposed to be us and we're watching terrible things happen he's watching terrible things happen and i felt like the first season arc of that story of that series was that um, when you see something bad happening, you have to act because there is no one else. You have to act like there mm-hmm. is no one else watching, no one else can help. And it, it indicted the watcher to do take action to try to end to empower individuals to save themselves. And that that, again, is being echoed, you know, here in Thor Love and Thunder of that he has to act, but he also has to empower people to help themselves. And that that is what, this new era of heroism is that we're learning and understanding through phase four is that it's not always going to be the Avengers to save the day. Sometimes it, mm-hmm. it, like being a hero is stepping aside and giving someone else the tools to take care of the issue themselves because they better understand it than we, mm-hmm. we do. Shang-Chi, um, like they have a better mm-hmm. understanding of what's actually the evil and what the actual problem. And I might be too caught up in my own grief over the things that I wanted to do the right thing and to know how to solve the problem. And that, you know, this is being echoed again within the metaphor of gods, of that if the gods won't fix the problem, then we have to do something. And and especially if we think about like that so much of this media, like Miss Marvel especially, but I also feel like with this movie is addressing newer fans regardless of age, but with the understanding that mm-hmm. we have a lot of kids that grew up watching Marvel movies and are coming in watching Marvel movies. And so we're presenting a, a new idea of that, of the, you could be a hero too. And let's, and the looking at what that unique situation is of the, the rest of us, if we are the Avengers, if we are the Tony Starks and, and the Steve Rogers, we as adults may not have the right pr- greatest perspective on how to fix the problem. For me, my interpretation is that this is presenting the notion without a solution of that maybe there are younger people who have a better idea of how to fix this problem because they're closer to it than we are. We may not have unlearned the problem. So like a really flat dynamic that I was talking in that Twitter thread was like Tony Stark, his arc was really understanding how wounded he was and trying to heal himself personally and his personal relationships and almost regardless of his superhero actions, that was always his underlying motivation and arc as a character was healing and in healing himself. And what we, what I think is interesting about what we've seen in the beginning of phase four is the repercussions of his choices of like the reason that the blip remained, that people had to go through the trauma of being gone for five years and then coming back and not just have that situation erased completely was because Tony wanted to keep his daughter. And so that one person's choice, which is also being indicted in Multiverses of Madness of Dr. Strange made a choice about what was the actual solution to the problem. But did we ever think about why he chose that one? You know, were there other ways they could have won, but maybe not kept the world that Dr. Strange wanted to keep it at. You know, again, we had individual men with a lot of power making choices that had horrible uh, repercussions for a lot of people that didn't get a chance or a choice in what was done. 
And now we're, you know, the MCU is having to deal with that, yeah. with refugee issues and, you know, displacement and now terrorism that's born out of that. Um, and so I think this is, you know, doing a lot of work again, but like this movie is, you know, addressing the idea of that, like, of that person who is somewhat embodied in Thor of like, it's okay. This is what you can do to help, but you can also help these other folks get their chance to do what's right because they know better what to do. Because that, in at the end of the day, yeah, that that story, Thor didn't come up with the solution to the issue. Jane did, right, mm-hmm. right, right, absolutely, and that's important. Right. I, I really, yeah. I really, I really, because of like the way they were portrayed in and um, as being sort of decadent and check like i i really feel like a, a metaphor for like the rich and powerful yes i, I want to make sure we have some time to talk about the cinematography and you know other sort of production stuff Je- jenna did you have any thoughts about cinematography with the movie or production design? i noticed that more in in terms of just definitely very distinctive color uh color choices um that show sort of the the doom and gloom also, the beginning, you know, um, with when they're introduced to Gore, where it's it's there's no there's no brightness. It's all it's it's you know it's it's kind of muted. I mean, the kind of different mm-hmm. col- colors, the colors choices of when like the kids are in the in the cage um, versus the um, rainbows and black and white. The colors in say all the gold and omnipotent city. Um, and then we have Earth, where the where the color kind of um, pops up. I definitely feel like my ability to analyze what was happening in the Independent City stuff was very sidelined by me obsessively looking at uh, the beautiful statues <laughs> and how, yeah. how great the art and production design was of that whole sequence. Um, the thing yeah. I liked about Independent City was that for me, it felt like the bright goldness felt like a bit of an homage to Clash of the Titans, the original, like how they filmed the gods as almost being a little too bright to focus on. Like they're a little too shiny, a little gauzy. And then the, the, I forgot the planet that he's on. That's the black and white area there. That the fact that Mjolnir um, brought color when it when it blazed to light, so it brings light and also color back. You could see that with kids of uh, seeing like rainbow power again. I'm a child of the <laughs> '80s, so I'm like <laughs> Hair Bear and My Little Pony all the way. I was watching that. I'm like, this is just like the time I watched My Little po- the Care Bear movie in the movie theaters as a child. I mean, it definitely was a movie with an aesthetic sensibility that was specific, which is always welcome when I, where, as far as I'm concerned. Um, with the, you know, the character design for all of the gods was really wonderful. I mean, and the flower gods from the opening scene with Gore the God Killer. I also have to mention specifically how clear it is that it is climate change that kills Gore's daughter, right? Yes. Like, that is a girl who is dying from climate change. That's not ambiguous. I think that's an important decision that the movie made to open with that, in fact. Well, hmm. yeah. Well, that's one of the things that, you know, again, I, I just love this movie because there's so much intention, you know, like, especially given that, you know, Taika is indigenous. There's a lot of indigenous struggles that are put in this movie in very intentional ways from climate change, you know, identity issues. I mean, it's so vast. Like when, I mean, I could watch this movie like a million times and find all these little nuances that are slipped in there. And, but yeah, like climate change at the beginning, like that was absolutely just blatant. 
you know, given that Indigenous people have been fighting so many battles recently, you know, with pipelines, with trying to get people to understand that, you know, we need to, like, change course, you know, that we need to protect and treat our Earth as a relative. This movie is so intentional. Everything from, like, the colors, the costumes, the props, you know, everything was intentionally done. And it just boggles my mind that, you know, Taika and all the filmmakers that were involved were able to find ways to get it into this movie in a way where it wasn't garish, where everything kind of fit and made sense to where it was inserted. Like nothing seemed really out of place. I mean, it just, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I think I'm, um, <laughs> I think I am one of those. Uh, okay. Love and Thunder is going to be my one direction, I think. <laughs> oh, ah. Well, I mean, I could say you guys have all made me really want to see the movie again, which is not a thing I had said when I had left theater. I, I'm not a big rewatcher of things unless I really want to go deep on them. And you've really showed me a lot that I want to see. I know that I wanted to talk about the representation at Omnipotent City of that it yeah. was really meaningful to see a Maori goddess. Um, and in fact, mm -hmm. before that, Thor actually, when he's talking about the city, he lists a variety of deities from other cultures, including a, a Maori god. I know uh, there's Quixcotl, I think. I know uh, Bass was sitting in front of Valkyrie and Jane. Um, and so, like, it, it was just wonderful to just see that there. That is something that I know I've seen a couple other Pacifico people, um, Maori specifically, on social media who were brought to tears to see just something just so simple of just like in a hall of gods, their gods are right there. And for me, even though um, that's not my specific culture, I still knew it. I recognized it. And it was very deeply meaningful to be, to be validated or, you know, have your existence validated in that way. So I'd heard some people say that they felt like some of that was counterbalanced by the fact that the gods aren't taking action. But I think some of the context that Johnny brought to it about like how they're not supposed to be there to like save you necessarily, yes. uh, you know, I can kind of balances on, on that. Do uh, Johnny, I, do you have any things about? I was kind of blown away by how many gods that they had represented in this movie that made me want to be able to pause it <laughs> to do like a full yes, exactly. To see, you know, the scope of these gods, because you see like so many there and, you know, they touched on a few as they're walking by, you know, they, they had the God of Dumplings, which I thought was hilarious because, you know, my partner was like, that does not make sense at all. And it took him out of the movie. And afterwards, when we were talking and we realized like, oh, this is like a children's story being told, you know, like we're not really watching like Thor, the Thor movie. We're, we're watching a story being told about a Thor adventure. And Bao is like one of those little funny things that you would throw into a kid's story to make the kids laugh. You know, that's something mm -hmm. that is very nonsensical. And, well, and that cartoony and anime. <laughs> yeah. To me, my reaction to that, I mean, I thought it was cute and funny and I laughed. But I also liked the idea that it presented the fact that that the fact that this cartoony bow was just in the same type of throne as any other god that is teaching an idea that just because you just because that didn't seem like a god to you 
doesn't mean that it doesn't have value to other people, including exactly. like we got to meet Korg's God, who I love the fact that Korg's God is sitting on a throne of scissors because all the many layers of of Game of Thrones reference, but also rock, paper, scissors reference. But again, like Thank presenting, you. like if I wanted to introduce the idea of religion and cultural respect to a child, I would have them come away with the idea of that what that looks like may look not only unfamiliar to you, but like something that you would see in one of your cartoons. It doesn't, but it's, it's valued in the same way as all the others. And that that's how we should approach cultures is not that like, oh, isn't that funny? It looks weird. It's, oh, wow. Okay. That's really cool. That's interesting and different. I've never seen it before. And, or it's just the same as all these other ones teaching that like you shouldn't expect gods or culture or spirituality to look uniform at all. And again, mm. another really subversive presentation of ideas happening in this film that seems like a joke unless you stop and kind of like think about what are the implications of somebody who doesn't carry in a lot of their preconceived notions of what this stuff should look like. Yeah, yeah. that's really, that's really. Yeah. I was reading somewhere where there was a, somebody was saying that Hella was in this scene for a very brief second. And, oh, oh, see, I which is interesting, this, yeah. right? Because she was killed in um, Ragnarok. And yeah. so it brought up the question, like, does huh. that mean that she survived and is going to return in a future movie? Oh, like, I, thought the, I I think they definitely will bring her back. Oh, uh, yeah. I think the Valhalla so, scene told, showed us that, you know, again, death means something different in the MCU, as we've learned with Moon Knight yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. Like, and that there is a different, there are different planes of existence and which would be, you know, for some people exist as an afterlife. So absolutely. And I, I like Hella is the embodiment of death. Death hasn't died yet. So <laughs> I, yeah, I can't believe she's exactly. still alive. One of the things that I did find trouble um, about the movie that was a surprise to me actually was that it did continue some of the fat phobic jokes from part one that I kind of had thought that because the public had critiqued it, thought maybe folks wouldn't have done that again in this time. I, mostly those seemed to be around Thor himself. Somebody had felt like Melissa McCarthy coming out as Hela was that, and I disagree. I thought she just like came out and was awesome, and I don't think her size had anything to do with that performance. But I do think that the jokes that were um, Thor and Thor's body were not, I mean, when he was heavier, were like really uh, just unnecessary, not even funny, and, and like unnecessary. I don't know. He here's the thing with that. <laughs> So I'm a chubby person. I like to call myself literally the brown ball of fury because I'm rotund. <laughs> and, you know, I know a lot of people have a lot of sensitivity when it comes to weight. But from my perspective as like an indigenous person, one of the things that we do as a coping mechanism is we make fun of everything in, and everything about us. Like we're very self-deprecating. So when I mm. saw that door, I knew a lot of people were going to have feelings and it hit differently for me, I think, because I thought it was funny. But because some of those jokes, you know, when you're when you're native, we make inappropriate jokes about everything. Humor is how we just cope with everything. Who's making those jokes and why is it there? They're trying to make everything like universal. And there's some things that are going to slip in that don't make sense or they seem cruel. But if you're looking at who's telling the story, 
it's there from a different perspective. I didn't see anything like maliciously being done. I understand like the criticisms around fat phobia. It hits differently depending on your experience. I was just making a joke with a call for Echo. They put out a call, a casting call for stickball players. And it said, must have an athletic physique. And I was Ooh. laughing and I was like, you know, athletic physique is anti-Indigenous because what about our ball-shaped stickball players? Because we have <laughs> a lot of stickball players and stickball is all running. You know, it's very active. It's you're constantly going. But we have a lot of stickball players who don't meet that body standard. And right. Uh, make, yeah. I would like, like those people to look yeah. at all of the Polynesian linebackers in the NFL and yeah. tell me what's an athletic physique as, like as yeah. that as a fat person as well um who's from one of what is uh, considered the fattest country in the world I can see both sides like it's very nuanced he went from dad bod to god bod and I was cracking up because when we look back at omnipotent city and you saw all these gods even in the beginning the gods were not skinny mm -hmm. <laughs> they were not very yeah. fit yep. even Zeus you know was fat uh, Right, like I also, thought that was, that was how his armor was actually shaped that way to emphasize like his belly. The belly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that was great. Like, we're not going to hide it. We're not going to put a girdle mm -hmm. on it. We're just going to like, oh, yeah. We're going to let it has be a there. Belly. Yeah. yeah. I actually, I agree. I'm a heavy person as well. And I thought, I thought that Thor was funny. I actually felt included. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Fat Thor and, made well, I mean, me feel like, oh, there's actually a fat hero. And it's like, and he, if I'm not mistaken, he fights fat in Endgame. Yes. And Chris Hemsworth, originally in the script for Endgame, when Thor in that end fight transforms to fight Thanos, in the original script, he was going to be turned thin in that moment. And it was Hemsworth uh -huh. was the one that insisted that he stay fat for that yeah. fight. Good. And to show that he, They'll be a hero, exactly. even though he's fat. Yeah. To be clear, though, I don't think people are saying that Thor shouldn't be fat. I think people are saying that the problem is when you make that a source of a joke or that that's the problem. Right. It's who's laughing and who exactly. isn't laughing and, and who's in control of the joke. Because I definitely exactly. I agree that in game, while I, I could see myself behaving like Thor did and relating a lot to him, I did know the positioning of the lens of humor in that film was, oh, look how sad and pathetic he is. Yeah. Um, and that we're supposed yep. to laugh at him being like, essentially like the dude from The Big Lebowski, yeah. you know, look right. how he's fatty, yeah. you know, ha ha ha. Um, and I think from, from the lens that I saw in Endgame, I could see Hemsworth being very specific in the way he characterized Thor of not being a just a fat joke, but being someone who was traumatized and dealing with grief and not knowing how to process it and kind of not processing it. I really loved his performance in that. But I could also see the criticism because I saw it from like, I know what the, the Russo brothers are making a fat joke out of him because isn't it funny the super hot bod guy that always has to be shirtless in every movie that these women like oh look we're gonna give him a belly to look at this time and i'm like he's still hot shut up yeah but like this, right. i did like that the the choice to call it a dad bod to god bod i felt was like awareness of that and also i thought it was hmm. actually a big part of the message that despite thor going on this 
you know, eat, pray, love, you know, colonizer, <laughs> self-finding journey, um, including getting in shape, didn't help him at all. And that that was kind of the point of that, mm. like, he thought that going on this journey was going to help him, you know, and losing weight was going to help him find himself. And it didn't. And that that was kind of the point of that, of like acknowledging that he started out fat and that he went through that journey and went through trying to find himself and it didn't work e it either. And so, yeah, and, see, and I, and with when it came to like him losing weight, you know, I think, I, I mean, I would have preferred for him to stay fat. Um, yes, <laughs> me too. There was something I wanted to bring up that we haven't touched on, it's sort of related. Um, but what I mean, it's the ability thing, like Thor has a disability, uh, he loses an eye, and he has an eye in this. And that I thought was an in, it was an interesting choice because why couldn't he stay? Why couldn't he function with with I? So to me that was very ableist, and I think that stood out to me more than any fat shaming. And it's kind of the thing, the representation that we tend to forget about in films is um, is about the ability. You know, I was very curious about that too. That. Kind of going back to, you know, it being a children's story and somebody else telling Thor's story, I think details change. And I kind of saw that, like, it almost becomes like a whitewashed version, right? When somebody else is telling your story, which, again, kind of goes back to, like, intentionality. Because I think with Indigenous people, you know, like, so much of our story, like, our history gets retold and it gets told, like, in a very whitewashed, sanitized, things get cleaned up. Like things aren't as horrible, like they make it seem like we were just here chilling before colonization and then colonization happened because we weren't doing anything with the land. So it's justified. So I, I was very curious about with him having eyes because they yeah. made a big deal about that being part of, you know, him having consequences like he's not invincible. Yeah. Yeah. So I was really curious about that. To clarify, uh, Thor got an eye from Rocket and I believe Infinity War. Yeah. And yeah. I know there was a lot of criticism of Infinity War and his narrative in that movie about like kind of erasing all the work that was done in Thor and Rock. I've been trying to find out information about how, why it was kept in this movie and especially because both eyes are blue and in Infinity Wars they were... One was brown. The artificial right. eye was brown. Yeah, um, right. I haven't been able to find any information. It may have been something that ended up on the cutting room floor. But I do think, like, it is a great point because I think <laughs> that the MCU has had a really rocky reputation for dealing with disability, uh, like mm -hmm. with Bucky and his arm and, um, you know, where it's not been dealt with very well and so i think it is uh it would have been wonderful to see him with the eye patch um a another echoing of like yeah. the legacy of that he's bringing forth from being at odin's son quite literally yes. um so i definitely think it's a super fair criticism and i it, it I, i'm sad i really liked him having that eye patch at the end of ragnarok mm -hmm. it was really sad to not have that that version of thor of him accepting all aspects of himself including his disability. As problematic as disability has been within the Marvel Universe, you know, they've been making some progress. Like we recently had um, 
an amputee, a deaf native actress <laughs> who's getting her own theories. I love Echo. And a good sign of progress. Even from the original cultural origins of that, of um, Odin taking out his eye and hanging himself on like that's the joke. Um, yeah. It's all like metaphors. He, he lost, it, yeah, it's the idea of that, like the the eye and perspective and wisdom and those dynamics there. But also, I feel like um, it presents a different cultural view of disability that uh, that exists outside of what we have within colonial white supremacy. That only you know, and capitalism that ha- sees anybody who can't contribute in a very specific way and look a very specific way it has no value while in other cultures including cultures that are idealized by uh, white supremacy the the idea of someone having um injuries and disabilities was not a, a thing that excluded them from society if anything it it was embraced as part of how our bodies change and a, and uh, almost like a uh, a mark of their wisdom and knowledge. And I think that a part of of why disability has such a visceral, visceral reaction from people is that while we love to have violence, yeah. we're uncomfortable with the legacy of violence. And disability so often, whether or not it's connected to violence, it will trigger a connection to violence and people who are viewing it of, mm. of be it like amputees, be it visible differences um you know i mean we see that i did a whole thread about horror movies and why monsters and horror movies are monsters and how they're a reflection of what is rejected by white supremacy and colonialism and you know these ideas Uh, (laughs) thank you um and that that what disability uh, why we think that the that's a monster is that it's reminding us of violence and and of our terrible, you know, and that that's why we reject, you know, this is the issue we have with uh, with veterans, too, um, is this rejection of them because of they remind us of the things that we don't want to think about um, because we don't know how to talk about the after effects of violence. We don't know how to talk about death, um, which is a cultural thing. There's a lot of cultures that have very healthy relationships with death and have no problem talking about it or dealing with it yeah it's a good thread we're gonna wrap now okay johnny tell our listeners where they can keep up with your work online well you can always keep up with me on twitter and instagram and facebook at johnny j and you can also see and learn more about my work at johnnyj.com but absolutely check out a tribe called geek at www.atribecalledgeek.com we have some great articles coming up we have an interview with the producers of Prey, which I am super excited about. Oh, hell yes. Um, I got to see the screener and so excited. Let me just say amazing. Um, but yeah, so check out A Tribe Called Geek. We got some good stuff coming up. So be sure to check it out. Ah, so that's Johnny J, which is J O H N N I E J A E. Fabulous. Thank you. And Jean, where can our listeners keep up with your work? Uh, well, as always, on Twitter under Fangirl Jean, and that's J-E-A-M-N-E. Um, um, also, FangirlGene.com. And um, I will soon be making another appearance on the podcast, You Are Good, um, talking about uh, Superman, 1978. Sweet. 
And I'll have a lot of related comments to this movie. I'm sure I'm going to try mm-hmm. to sneak into that conversation. Jenna, where, where can our listeners keep up with your work? So um, JennaLEnglish.com. You can view um, links to um, some of my uh, features and then also um, the web series validation. Fabulous. Thank you so much. And as for me, I am on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Ilana underscore Brooklyn. As always, we'll have more interviews with comics, writers, artists, and other comics world related topics in the upcoming future on graphicpolicy.com. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.